You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's reading is from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the power, pardon, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, quote, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, end quote. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, quote, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, end quote. And gazing at him, all who said, sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for being here with us today. Thank you for the message that you have prepared. I pray that we would have ears to listen to whatever it is that you would like to deliver today through Andrew. Please give him clarity and good recall of the things that he has been studying I thank you that uh, you overcome all of our plans to thwart your will. I thank you that you are so much more powerful um, than anything we will encounter in this life as a challenge. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for that, Um, Elin. Today I want to start off with uh, asking a couple of questions. And the first is this. Um, How many of you are familiar with or you've heard before the expression, their face was beaming? Anybody heard that before? In what context do we usually hear that kind of a statement? Someone smiling? Oh, Oh, yeah, weddings, yeah. Anywhere else? There's one place I feel like it comes up a lot. It's it's like... Sometimes it's used in the way like their face was glowing. Pregnancy, right? Um, So we we kind of are familiar with this phrase. It sort of means like uh, something good and beautiful inside of you that is bubbling up so much that it's showing up on your face. You're like projecting this demeanor. There's There's this glow about you. You're shining. You're bright. That kind of a thing. So like when a new mother, her face will beam with love, right? Or a father's face will beam with pride when they watch their child do something or accomplish something. Or or maybe your own face beams when you, you know, like with satisfaction, when you look at a job well done, that that type of a thing. And, And I bring this up because I think that that sort of thing is going on with Stephen in such a way that the members of the Sanhedrin are taking notice. Right? They're, they're saying, man, there's something about this guy that's different. He's, it's, like he's, it's like he's beaming. 
So if you look with me in verse 15, again, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Although he's going to add like another element that we'll discuss. But in verse 15 of our passage, it says, In gazing at him, that is gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council, so that, that's the Sanhedrin, the highest governing authority in Israel under the Roman Empire, made up of Israelite priests, that kind of thing. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So that adds another element. So there's something about Stephen that's different, and what's different is that his face looks like an angel. Now, angels in the Bible, right, they are these uh, majestic, glorious, even luminous, they're described in that way sometimes, but they're warriors in God's army. They do God's will, right, and they worship God. You can see some of these things in Psalm 103, 20, and 21, uh, for example. And one of the things that they do in doing God's will is they bring God's message to people. Right? And so in Judaism, with all that in mind, when you think about uh, inside the Bible and even uh, Judaic writings outside of the Bible, when they compare a person to an angel, they're comparing them to an entity that is majestic, power, luminous, like that's the kind of appearance that they, they have. Sometimes they kind of come in a hidden way, but oftentimes they have that kind of, of an appearance. So for example, in Judges chapter 13, verse 6, Samson's mother, remember Samson, he had long hair, and you wonder, is there power in his hair, or does his power come from the Lord? But we're not going to go into that right now. But Samson's mother, right, she explains, she doesn't realize that she's actually encountered the angel of the Lord. But she goes to her husband and she describes a man of God. She's like, I saw a man of God. And his appearance was so awesome and even terrifying that it was like he was an angel. Right? So she said, so that kind of idea. So when, when uh, they're describing, they're saying, man, his face looks like the face of an angel. Don't think like, oh, his, his skin was so smooth. Like he had, he's had such a, he had such a sweet, cute little baby face, right? That's not what they're talking about. They're, what they mean is, no, like he, man, he looks like powerful, majestic, luminous, right? There, there, there's something about him that, it, there's like a calm about him. There's like a godly confidence as the messenger of God. That, that is what's showing up in Stephen's face, and even the Sanhedrin are, are saying like, wow, w would you look at that? Now, my question this morning that I want to ask is, well, why? Why does he look like that? And, and I want to argue that from the passage that the reason why Stephen's face beams is because of two things. One is because of what he's filled with. His face beams because of what he's filled with. That's, that's our first point this morning. But then the second thing is that his face is beaming because of the darkness all around him. So we'll talk about each of those uh, two points as, as we go along. So the first reason we said, the reason why his face is beaming is because of what he is filled with. So look at verse 8 again. There it says, And Stephen 
full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So if you remember who Stephen is, he's one of the seven chosen that they picked out to help with the distribution of resources to the widows of the Hellenists, right? The Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem at the time who went to Greek-speaking synagogue. They came from the diaspora, so they came from other parts of the Roman Empire, and now they're in Jerusalem. So they, they put Stephen as one of seven in charge of the distribution of those goods, if you remember that from the earlier part of Acts chapter 6. Now, also, if you remember, in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, the apostles, they kind of put together some criteria for the congregation to use as part of their choosing process, who they might elect to that position to play that role within the church. And part of the criteria that they give in verse 3 is that they were to be people of good repute, so good reputation uh, in the community, and full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so... Stephen evidently met that criteria. Then, when he's described more specifically, because that's, that's supposed to be the criteria for all the seven, when Stephen is des described more specifically in verse 5, it says that he is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So this is a person who trusted in God and whose God's very presence was inside of him. Right? And then it goes on in verse 8 to say, he was full of grace, meaning God's favor rested upon him, and of power. So the power to minister in Jesus' name, right? So when we think about Stephen, we think of a full person, right? He's, he's full, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of Holy Spirit power. God's favor rested upon him because God's spirit was inside of him. Now, who else in the Bible is described in a similar way? Jesus. That's always the right answer, right? <laughs> Jesus was described in the same way, right? In John chapter 1, verse 14, he was full of grace and truth. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, he was filled with wisdom. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. So part of what is being communicated here, I think, is that, that the same God who is in Jesus, the power and presence of God in Jesus, is also now in Stephen, right? And so what that means is if a person is filled with the power and presence of God like Jesus, what's going to happen as a consequence is that their demeanor is going to change, and they're going to do Jesus-like things. Right? Sometimes Christianity can be, you know, people have a mistaken notion about what it means to follow Jesus. What they think it means is, let's look at what Jesus does, and then let's just try to copy that. And that is partially true, but you, that won't happen unless you're filled with the same things that Jesus is filled with. And so Stephen is filled with the same things that, Je that Jesus is filled with, the power of God, the presence of God, and so he ends up doing Jesus-like things. And in our passage, it mentions two things that Stephen does. He performs signs and wonders, and then he responds to the opposition with wisdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, 
was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we've mentioned earlier when it comes to this phrase, uh, signs and wonders or wonders and signs. Throughout the Bible, what it means is there's an unusual abundance of miracles, sort of like an outbreak of miracles that accompanies the message that the kingdom of God is breaking into the present. That's part of what's going on with signs and wonders. Now, in the New Testament, that namely comes in the form of exorcism, casting out demons, and healings, right? And all of that is to communicate. It's a signal to the people who watch on. Okay, signs and wonders are happening. That means that the kingdom of God is breaking into the present through Jesus. Now, who else performed signs and wonders? The apostles? Who else? Jesus? Oh, this is, okay, you get extra bonus points if you can remember who in the Old Testament. Moses. Wow, that's too, you all get bonus points. So if you remember, and, and, and Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, verse 36, when we get there, he's going to remind the Sanhedrin, hey, just like I'm in trouble right now for performing signs and wonders. Do you guys remember who else performed signs and wonders? Moses. During the time of the Exodus. That accompanied your deliverance out of captivity. And that pointed forward to a prophet like Moses. There's a second Moses to come. So that when you get to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, then we read that Jesus performed signs and wonders. And that validated who he was and his message. So then by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 16, who are the apostles filled with? The spirits. You see how this theme is happening. And in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are, are performing so many signs and wonders there's so many exorcisms happening. There's so many people being healed that they are, people are lining the streets of Jerusalem just in hopes that Peter's shadow might be cast upon them. So you, you've got, and that points back to Jesus. So Moses points forward to Jesus, and then the disciples, what they're doing is signs and wonders, it, it, it points back to Jesus. And now Stephen, he's, it's, he's in the same prophetic stream. Right, signs and wonders validate the message of the good news that the gospel of God in Jesus Christ is breaking into the present. Now, one of the things that that, that communicates to us is, is that maybe that means that this type of ministry isn't just relegated to Moses, isn't just relegated to Jesus, isn't just relegated to the apostles. So if you look back in Acts chapter 2, for example, right there, Peter is talking about Joel 2 and the fulfillment of Joel 2. And one of the things he says is, Joel looked into the future and he says, there's going to be a time that comes. And he, I don't think he was, I don't know if he was, in Joel, if he was coupling it with the, the coming of the new covenant. But definitely that, that's true. But he said, there, there's a time that's coming, right? In the last days, Right? Between the time of Jesus' crucifixion and the time of his return, the New Testament talks about as the last days. In the last days, not only I, Joel, will be a prophet, but all the people of God will be prophets, young and old, male and female, you know, slave and free. And they will declare the mighty works of God and, 
and that will declare that the kingdom of God is breaking into the present, and that will be accompanied by demonstrations of, of power. Right? And so that is a, a sort of um, invitation right, for all of us. Not, see, and we've said this before, not to try to make something happen. Not to try to make something happen, but to be open to things happening. Right? And, and, and we, we think about the testimony of missionaries who come back from the field and they say, like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but over here where the kingdom of God is breaking into a new place, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And we go, well, I don't know, you know, maybe you're delirious. I'm like, no, I think that that's happening. Or, or when there's a, a revival that breaks out. Or when the, the gospel of God breaks into a place again where it's kind of gone dormant, let's say. And, and, and a revival happens in, in that way. And so there's this invitation, not to make something happen, but to be open to God doing something like that, uh, even in our midst, even today, even, even in, in Turlock. So that's one thing that Stephen's doing. He's performing signs and wonders. The second thing that he's doing is he is responding to the opposition with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to uh, verse 9, there it says, Then some of those, so not all, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, so that's in North Africa, and the Alexandrians, so that's in Egypt, and those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, so those are two uh, Roman provinces that are now modern-day Turkey. Actually, Paul, and won't get into this today, but Paul is from Cilicia. That's where Tarsus is. So that, that becomes interesting because maybe when Paul was in Jerusalem, he attended the synagogue of the freedmen, but we won't, we'll put that aside, aside from now. But the point is, these are all places outside of Israel, okay? They rose up, it says, and disputed with Stephen. And then we read verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, so who's opposing Stephen? It's a little bit difficult to, to tell whether we're talking about one synagogue or many synagogues, but there's at least one synagogue, and that's the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, when we say freedmen, we're talking about freed Jewish slaves right, who at one time were living in the diaspora in the other parts of the Roman Empire, and then they gained Roman citizenship as a consequence of their manumission. So they're released from their slavery, they get Roman citizenship, and I guess this group made their way down to Jerusalem, and they, at least the founders, start this synagogue, right? And, and that doesn't mean that everybody involved were freedmen, but that's how this place started, and that's part of, that's core to their identity. Now, what's difficult to discern is whether or not the rest of the people mentioned and areas mentioned in verse 9, if, those, if that's describing the other people, groups that were present in this one synagogue of the freedmen, or if that represents that there were multiple synagogues that catered to these different people groups. Acts chapter 24, 12 tells us that there were multiple synagogues within the city limits of Jerusalem. So that's, that's kind of difficult to tell, but I think the point is this that these are Hellenists, came from outside of Israel, right? made their way to Jerusalem because 
the law was important to them and because the temple was important to them. And I, I think that's important to keep in mind, and that's going to play a role later as we consider um, uh, uh, other things. So another thing I think that is interesting to notice is, so Stephen, he's a Hellenist, if you remember. So Stephen is coming to his own, and his own receive him not. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus again. And we're just going to keep noting these um, as, we, as we go along. And isn't that true? Right? There's just something about it where it's like the hardest people to convince or, or to testify regarding Jesus, in my opinion or in my experience, are those who are the closest to you, who maybe knew you when you were younger. There's something about, something about that, right? Like that's the hardest people to share Jesus with. And Stephen is experiencing that. But he's going to those people the way that Jesus went to his people. And you think about how Nazareth went and all that. And he's experiencing rejection. But how does he respond? It says he responds with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus promised. On several occasions during Jesus' earthly ministry, he let his disciples know, hey, look, you're going to be dragged before councils, before synagogues, right? You're going to face opposition as part of your witness, your testimony regarding who I am and, and what it means to follow me. But he also, he gave them that sort of warning, but not a warning in the sense like, hey, don't go there. Like, hey, this is what's going to happen. But then he also, that was accompanied by a promises, one of the things he said was, hey, when that happens, I am going to give you wisdom. Wisdom that the opposition is not going to be able to withstand. So Luke 21, 15 talks about that. And in addition to that, I'm going to give you my spirit. And when the time comes, you're not going to even have to formulate what you're going to say. Because the spirit is going to give you what you're going to say in Luke chapter 12, verse 12. And so now Stephen is experiencing the fruit of these promises as he's facing this, this opposition uh, even now. And so he can lean into those promises. And so when we, we go back to the bigger question, okay, why was Stephen's face beaming? Right, part of it is, well, his demeanor reflect, reflected what his heart was filled with. It was filled with God's presence, God's power, the same presence and power that was in Jesus. And so his face is, is beaming. And that fits hand in glove with the message of the book of Acts, right? What Jesus continued to say and do through his spirit-empowered witnesses, even in the face of opposition. And part of us going through the book of Acts is not just to satisfy curiosity regarding what happened back then. It's an invitation to take your place in the story where we, you guys, not, not just me, but you, you, we just come here, I just equip you. You guys are the ministers where you guys step into that story 
And then Jesus, through you, as you open yourself to God's Spirit, He fills you so that you continue to say the things of Jesus, do the things of Jesus, by the power of, of Jesus' Spirit, even in the face of opposition. And, th and that's what God is calling you to. It's not like, man, Stephen, look how special he is. No, it's more like, hey, come be a Stephen, is what the message of this passage is, part of what it's, what it's saying. So that's one reason why his face is beaming. But then I mentioned a second. Another reason why his face is beaming is because of the darkness that's all around him. So I don't know if you've ever tried this, but have you ever tried to use a flashlight in broad daylight? I've actually done that. Just to see if like anything could show up. And nothing, nothing shows up. It doesn't appear to be shining. Right? But when you bring it into a dark room, oh, there it is. Right? And I think that's in part what's happening with Stephen. I, we're so used to, I'm so used to the darkness of the fallen world. Right? That it just doesn't, you know... It's like how your eyes adjust to a movie theater or something like that, and you go outside. It's like, oh, wow, that's what light is like, right? And, and so we get used to it, right? But Stephen is coming into this place, and he's distinct. Part of what we're talking about is the contrast between what's going on in Stephen and what's going on in them. Now, remember, he's not going into a bar where there's brawls and prostitutes, He's going into a religious place, and they're noting, wow, there's something different about this guy. Now, notice the darkness that's present. In verse 11, we begin there. Then they secretly, so this is the, the, the people of the synagogue, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, that, that is Stephen, and seized him and brought him before the council, before the Sanhedrin. Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So in response, so hey, can you imagine? Um, Stephen's there. He's casting demons out of people. So people have been plagued with demons. He's healing people in Jesus' name, proclaiming the gospel that the kingdom is breaking into the present, and their response is to seize him, spread false rumors to the point where he's arrested and then brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus again. Right? And that's what you're going to see. When you follow Jesus, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus fly in a private jet? Did somebody say yes? I heard that. Um, did Jesus, did he get in the back of a limousine? No. 
Did Jesus wear really fancy clothes and really expensive sneakers? No, he didn't. So what makes us think that to follow Jesus means that that would be what our life was about? It's not. When, you're, when you follow Jesus, your life is going to look like Jesus' life, right? And Stephen's life looks like Jesus' life. And that means in this world, lots of opposition, and then we'll see how it ends for Stephen like a month from now, but then vindication forever. Right? So it will be worth it. But think about even the charges that are being brought to Stephen. Right? The umbrella charge is blasphemy. Who else was charged with blasphemy? Jesus, right, when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, they kind of changed the charge when they brought him before the Romans because the Romans don't care about blasphemy, so they changed it to insurrection, and there's a certain sense to that. But when he was before the Sanhedrin, it was blasphemy. They're saying blasphemy before, no, blasphemy against Moses and against God, right? So blasphemy means to sort of defame or ruin the reputation of. So they're saying about Stephen, he's ruining the reputation of Moses and the reputation of God, right? Now, as, as you go on, like the charges get more and more specific. Did you notice that? So it starts off, right, this is blasphemy against Moses and God. Then by the time you get to verse 13, it's like, well, okay, now we're talking about the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, and the holy place. That's an interesting shift right there, to go from God to the holy place. Okay, and then it gets even more specific to talk about, well, now we're, talk, we're talking about the customs of Moses, and we're talking about the destruction of the holy place. So I, I think these charges are related to the Christian claim that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the sacrificial system described in the law so that they are now no longer necessary. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> out of a job, right? Well, at least the council. But, but, even, but even the synagogue people, they don't like it either. They don't, they don't like that either. You couple that with Jesus' prediction, hey, the temple is going to be destroyed, which, you know, it's interesting because these are called false accusations, but they're like kind of false, and in a way they're kind of true. But... Like, he, he predicted, yeah, he predicted that the temple was going to be destroyed, right? He didn't say that he personally was going to do that. In a way, he is the one who does that because he controls everything. But then also in John chapter 2, what's the temple of God that's destroyed and then raised up? Jesus' body. And so there's a lot of things that are not perfectly understandable within the framework that they're operating in, Okay. But, but when you, all that together is very offensive, right, to, to the Jew, and especially this group. Now, why would this particular group be especially offended by that? Now, I'm thinking not about the council, but about the, the synagogue of the freedmen who brought about this situation. Why would they care so much about this 
message. Well, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. And, and think if this, if this was your family identity, your heritage was, you know, my dad or my grandfather, he, like at one point our family was taken captive and brought out of Israel where we were slaves. And then we were liberated and then even given Roman citizenship. And then there, there came a point of decision where we had to decide, should we put down roots here or should we take the sacrifice to travel all the way back to Jerusalem during a time where travel was very difficult. Like, people didn't move around very much during that time. And these people said, we're going back to Jerusalem. Why would they do that? So that they could participate in the customs of Moses and so they could make sacrifices at the temple. So that's their heritage. That's their identity. So when Stephen comes along and he says, hey, all that is now unnecessary. That's all obsolete now. They're like, what? And then he says, well, because this, this carpenter from this very small town, like so small, in the country, in the boondocks, a town with a bad reputation, mysterious circumstances around his birth. Well, he was crucified, and they're like, well, the Romans crucified tons of people. Right? No, 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 but, but he came back from the dead. Right? And in hindsight, we're like, oh, man, yeah, the kingdom of God is breaking into the present from our vantage point, right? But for them, they're like, uh, Stephen, um, well, people, that's not how the Messiah comes. And people don't rise from the dead, except for maybe at the end of time. Right? And so you can, like, what I'm trying to say is that the response of the Hellenists is understandable. But nevertheless, what they had done is that they had so idolized things connected to God, God's law, the temple, that they were even willing to now break the law. Like, is, it, is this really about the law of Moses when you're willing to bear false witness? That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? And now you're rejecting God's perfect sacrifice. So, who is blaspheming Moses and God? The customs of Moses and the whole sacrificial system is meant to point forward to Jesus. Right, so Stephen's not blaspheming. It's just that the Messiah has come. Right, and see, what had happened is, is this shift, this very subtle shift, happened in their heart where they began to worship the signs that pointed to God and his Messiah instead of God and Messiah, right? They were holding on to shadows when the substance that cast those shadows had come. And this is very easy to do. It's extreme... 
you know, it's easy to kind of think through, like, should I, should I go to the bar, fight people, and take, take somebody home and sleep with them? Like, is that God's will? You know the answer to that, right? What's harder, or, or maybe, and this is one of the strategies of Satan, right, is to take a good thing. Is the law a good thing? Paul says it's a good thing. What about the temple? Is the temple a good thing? The temple is amazing, right? But when good things, like they have their place, when they become ultimate things, that becomes problematic. And we do it all the time. Like we think about uh, church traditions. Are church traditions bad things? They're not, like, uh, God wants to be, like, he's a God of order. He wants to be worshipped with order. Like, and so people have to make a decision about, like, how are we going to order what we do in our worship? That's not a bad thing. When the good thing becomes an ultimate thing, like, comes into the place of God, now, now all of a sudden we have a, a problem. Right? Or, or you think about anything kind of in that category that is good, that become, becomes ultimate. Think about your job. Like, part of being in the image of God is that you would be productive. You, you take things that are in chaos, you bring it into order, you fill it with beauty, and in that way, you reflect what God does. You were, you were meant for that. There's a reason why when you do a good job, it, man, it just it feels so good, right? Because you're operating within your design. But what happens when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing in the place of God? Well, that becomes problematic. What about focusing on the family? Is family a good thing? Marriage, parenting, beautiful things, right? Relationships. Like you're just, I mean, that reflects who God is in his triune nature. It, it, it proclaims the gospel into the world. But when those good things become ultimate things, they take the place of God himself, now it becomes problematic. And you can see how it's just a, it's just a real subtle shift, right? Going from God to his holy place. It's like that kind of a, a shift. Now, I'm really, I'm really leaning into God right now, and I'm, I'm counting on him to speak to you individually. Because we don't all do this with the same things, right? We all have our own particular bent of making something good into something ultimate. And in a way, it's different, right? It's like, uh, you know, you don't, you, you, don't go, you don't brawl at bars just a little bit, right? You know what I mean? Like, you don't, you don't like properly order that in your heart. Like, you just leave that behind, right? Um, but in this, this case, God is calling us to properly order things where he's the king of everything, even good things, where you're counting on him to guide you and direct you even in the, even in the good things. And that is another thing that God is inviting us to. So if we go back to the bigger question, okay, so why... Why is Stephen's face beaming? 
Well, for one, he is, <laughs> he's filled with the power and presence of God. So if you, if you think about, if Moses' face beamed upon receiving the tablets of stone, the law written on the tablets of stone, if his face is going to beam, how about, you know, this is one of the promises of the new covenant, how about when God writes the law of God on your heart? Are we surprised that Stephen's face is beaming? Or how about when the same presence of God that once filled the temple with glory, how about if that resides in a person? Right? You know, Stephen's standing there, right? And they're like, you're blaspheming against the law. And you're blaspheming against the temple. All while talking to somebody whose God's law is written on their heart and they have now become part of the temple. They just don't understand God, what God is doing. Of course his face is beaming. And then when you consider the fact, you know, and, and, and sometimes Christians, we get this wrong. Right? We have the light of the gospel, and we're like, yeah, you know what? We better stay away from the darkness. Hey, come over here in this holy huddle, and maybe we'll just stay together, and we'll write each other posts about how bad the world is, and we'll just keep talking and complaining to each other about it. That's not what Stephen does. He, he goes into the darkness, right? He goes, he goes to the synagogue where people worship shadows. And they're not the only ones, right? The, the whole earth points us to God and to Jesus. All of creation does. But what does Romans 1 tell us? That we no longer worship the creator, but instead what? Worship the creature the created. But so what happens is once we, God opens our eyes to that truth, he fills us with himself. We go back into the darkness. And when we do, we bring the light of the gospel with us. Right? And then it, and then it shines. Now some people, like John 3 tells us, some people are not going to like that. They're not, because the light exposes things. Now, for us, we know that the light exposes things, and sometimes it exposes ugly things in us. But the difference is, the difference between us and unbelievers is that it's not that, well, I don't sin, and they do. That's not the case, right? The difference is, we say, bring the light. Yes, Lord, bring the light. Show me what's wrong inside of me so that I can bring those things to you and you can change me from the inside out. And if you, if you do that, when you walk into places, the air will change around you. You, you will be God's temple. I mean, that's a, nobody is worth that. And yet, and yet God is saying, no, I want to do that in you, through you. And you say, well, I've never experienced that. It doesn't matter. God's saying, you can experience it now. Come to me now, today. I will fill you with myself, and then you will shine in the darkness. It's an amazing life, an abundant life an exciting life. Let's pray. 
Jesus, you tell us in your word that with, apart from you, we can do nothing. But when we abide in you, we produce fruit. By your spirit, even now, work in our hearts in such a way to move us to long to abide in you and to drink from your everlasting wells of life. Fill us with your life and light, God. Make us a testimony for you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.